Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us slash sermons. We'd love to have you join us for a worship service this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road in Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. When in seminary, and you, you have a lot of different classes you take, there is a class that you take called sermon building, and then there's sermon delivery. They're divided up into two different ones, and that's kind of to teach you to do what I'm doing right here. And in sermon building, one of the things that they teach you as you come to a passage of Scripture is the main goal that you have is to figure out why it's in here and what's the main reason. In other words, what's the main point? Why did God, of all of the things that happened throughout the history of his people, why did he put include this in the Word of God? Why did he want it in here? And then at that point, once you figure that out, when you preach, that should be the main point of what you're preaching on. Makes sense, right? Okay, that doesn't blow you away. But whenever you come to a passage of Scripture, there's going to be other things that you see, and there's sub-points, or there's going to be different things that you could examine or look at. And one of the things you have to be careful is to not let what we call secondary ideas about a passage take the, the, the main stage, so to speak. And I say all of that because when you get to John chapter 2, the first 12 verses, this is probably the greatest example of people taking a passage of Scripture and talking about really a secondary point and not the main point. And the secondary point is, is it okay to drink? Because Jesus made water into wine. I have heard this passage of Scripture preached on or talked about or studied or looked at quite a bit in my life. And almost universally, that's pretty much what people talk about. And that's in here. I mean, obviously, that's the miracle that he performs, but that's not really the main point. Now, I'll just tell you right here off the top that, yes, he makes water into wine. And the Greek word for wine here is the Greek word oinos, which means wine. But it can mean wine that, yes, does have alcohol in it that can make you drunk. It also could mean what they did back in those days is they would dilute the wine often with water, that you would have to drink so much of it to get drunk that you would get sick from drinking that much water. And it can also just mean juice, for the most part, or unfermented. So just the word itself doesn't really help your cause. And then you get down to verse 10 where, you know, the guy, the head waiter of the whole shebang there, he has a sip of it. And he says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Well, that phrase, drunk freely, is a word, and every other time that it's translated means gets drunk. And it's in the Bible several other places. And so, yeah, he's saying when people have, you know, hit it back a little bit. So people say, well, clearly he's making the good wine. That means it's okay. But then you have the other folks that look and say, there's no possible way that Jesus would make a a, a beverage that, that gets drunk people drunker. I mean, it's a sin. Nobody really disagrees about being drunk being a sin. And so Jesus wouldn't have done that. And I read probably 12 or 14 different commentaries as I prepared for this sermon, and it depended on which guy you read, which, which camp they fell in, whether it was okay, not okay, this, that, or the other thing. And what you really realize is pretty much whatever you think about drinking, you can find it in this passage of Scripture. It's not really the best one to use to kind of develop your theology on drinking. But unfortunately, most people, that's all they ever get out of this, and they miss the bigger thing. They miss what this really was all about. It says there in verse 11, we'll read the whole thing in just a moment. It says, this is the first of his signs 
Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The reason why God included this in this passage of scripture or this passage of scripture here in his word is is what it indicates. It's this sign. It's it's what happens with Mary when she brings this problem to Jesus and how he responds and how she and the servants respond in this whole interaction. And we see the great and mighty glory of Christ. If you want a theology on alcohol, you really got to go through the whole thing and we'll do that another time. And you're like, oh, you know. But I want you, as we look at the wedding here at Cana, I want you to stand in the honor of God's word. We're going to read through it this morning. And we're going to look at really what this is all about. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for including this passage, Lord, that reminds us of your great power and your great concern for all aspects of our lives. Lord, I pray for each person that's in this room this morning. As they come here, all of us with various problems and struggles and issues in our lives and concerns. Lord, that we can see you as you were so long ago with your your mother. And Lord, how you love us and care for us in the same way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Really in this passage, we we see this account. There's a problem, comes to Jesus, and he solves the problem. And we see bringing our problems to Jesus. Bringing our issues to Jesus. All of us, as I just prayed, come here this morning in different... I don't know what's going on in your life. I know little bits about some of you and what maybe you may be facing, what may be going on. But I would tend to believe that if I were to go through every single person here and say, do you have at least a problem right now? I would get a unanimous... Yeah, I can think of one or two. Or maybe I can give you a rather long list. And here we see a problem at a wedding... And we see this interaction with Mary and the servants and Jesus and how they, 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 they go about dealing with this issue. And it's a, a great example, a picture for us as we bring our problems, our issues to Christ, how we need to respond and understand how he responds to us. And so we begin right there at the very beginning in the opening verses of the human problem. The wine was running out says, on the third day, now the third day, and, and if you look in the Gospel of John, there's lots of markers with days, the next day, the next day, this day. 
It's very difficult because we don't know what the third day means here. Is it the third day after what just ended in chapter 1? Is it the third day of the wedding? Which it could be. They had long weddings. I grew up in the north in Pennsylvania, and our weddings, I thought, were long. Weddings up there, they were all-day affairs. You would, you know, you'd leave at 10 o'clock in the morning, and you'd have to be there forever before the thing started. And then after it was over, you'd go to the reception. And that was, it was like an hour and a half before the, the party, the wedding party would show up because they had to have their pictures. And then you waited, you had a big long meal. And then there was, you know, all of these things. It would be hours and hours. And then I moved down here and I discovered that for a while there were a lot of Southerners that just had the wedding and then they'd go to the fellowship hall and have punch and cookies. Has anybody had the punch and cookies afterwards? I see a few head nods. I was like, jackpot. There you go. You can get that done in halftime. You know, it, it's, it was... I realized that's kind of a fading thing, the bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was like, hey, the smaller and the was We had the meal in the whole nine yards. But that was nothing compared to a, a Jewish wedding. I don't know if they're exactly like this today, but Jewish weddings were multiple days long. Often the ceremony took place on Wednesday, and that was just kind of the beginning of how long this thing would, would drag on or go on, depending on your perspective. And the way it worked, a, a husband and a wife, they would be betrothed to each other. Now, they didn't get married and consummate the marriage. Once they were betrothed, they were legally married, but then the, the husband would go and build a house, prepare for his family. You can see the picture of Jesus preparing a place for the bride, the church, and that's a whole separate thing. But this is also the position Joseph and Mary are in when she became pregnant with Jesus. They were legally bound, but had not come together. But when they would get married, they would then go to his house, and there they would, she would move in with her new husband, and, and then there would be a big party that would go on for multiple days. And so here, there's a wedding going on in Cana, which isn't far from where Jesus was from, Nazareth, and he was invited to this wedding. And, and I don't know, it says he and his disciples, I'm not really sure if, if the disciples were invited or if they just showed up, you know, wedding crashers or what, it doesn't really tell us here, but they're there. And Jesus' mom was there, Mary. doesn't say her name, just it's Mary. And Mary obviously has a bigger role than just being invited. She's working. And, and probably fairly typical, you know, there's a family. She knows the family. She's helping out with what's going on. You know, there's servants there that are helping out. And then there's the problem. The wine's running out. It does say here the wine ran out, but it, it kind of has more in the verbiage an indication it was running out. And you get that. I mean, there it is. You see all the guests. You see how long it has to go on. It's getting lower and lower, and you realize it's not going to last and as long as this party's going to last. And so there's a problem. There's an issue. And so Mary goes to Jesus. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, Jesus, at this point, most people believe his father, Joseph, his earthly father, is dead. And so Jesus, at 30 years old, would have been, in essence, the man of the, his, his family up until this point. When there were problems or issues, he was the one that was expected to kind of deal with them or handle them or whatever. And that's probably, in essence, part of Mary's going to him. But she goes to him and presents this. And there's two different ways people have understood this question that Mary asks. On one way, they think it's just a normal question, thinking Jesus could, in a natural way, fix the problem. I mean, he did show up with at least five other guys. You know, he's there, and so the wine's running out. Mary may go to him thinking, you know what? The five of you, the, all your buddies that weren't invited, to the, you could go get some. There are other towns and villages and places where you might be able to get enough wine to get us through wherever we need to get to. It could be just a very practical question or question. Or, 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 uh, uh, question of Jesus. 
Or, on the other hand, and a lot of folks fall this way, that know that Mary at this point is expecting something from Jesus. And you can put yourself a little bit in her shoes. For 30 years now, she has been waiting. Jesus, when she was a a young woman, an angel shows up, tells her all of these things about this son that she's going to have. She's pregnant as a virgin. The Holy Spirit has come upon her. This child is going to save his people from their sins. You'll call his name Jesus. All of these things that, have, that took place there. And now we are 30, well, 20 some odd years into the future. And Jesus is a carpenter. I'm sure he was, you know, he was, as she watched him grow up, I mean, he was sinless. And I always think of verse 12, what it says, he went with his mother and his brothers and brothers and sisters, his brothers. What it would have been like to be the sibling of Jesus? Wouldn't that have been awful? I mean, absolutely terrible. You could never get away with anything. Let's blame Jesus. Mom will never believe it was Jesus that did it. <laughs> and even if something got broken, you know, you'd be like, hey, Jesus, could you just fix it? Just do your thing and make it better? You know, we, but we don't know if he did miracles. The reality is the Bible after his birth, has one account of his growing up years. When he was around 12 years old, he hung out in the temple to to have a deep theological conversation with the, the religious leaders of the day. That's it. That's all we know of that the Bible records. And so Mary, we, we don't really know, but for all these years, he, he, he wondering about her son. And then everything that we've seen so far in the Gospel of John happens. John the Baptist, who was the big religious, everybody's talking about him, guys, he's related to him, everybody's going out to him. When Jesus went out there, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is the one that came before me. John the Baptist says all of these things about Jesus. When he's baptized, the Spirit descends upon him. All of a sudden, the next day, he's got disciples. You know, he shows up here, he's got four or five guys just hanging on his every word. There may be a sense that Mary's finally going thinking, it's about to take place. And so she comes to him with this problem. But whichever way, whether it was just a normal, hey, Jesus, can you go find some wine? Or maybe you're, you're, I'm ready to see you do what you're going to do. We notice here with Mary, what does she do when she has a problem? She goes to Jesus. There's a lot to, to be said right then and there for us to go to Jesus with our problems. You know what's really interesting about this miracle? It's one of the few, I try to rack my brain and maybe somebody can correct me. It's one of the few, the, the miracle that I see that didn't require a miracle. I mean, when Jesus made blind people see or deaf people hear or dead people rise, that took a miracle. There was no other option. They were, that was all they had or nothing else. Running out of wine, there was a human perspective of how to fix that problem. Go get more wine. I mean, I know there's not convenience stores or whatever it is to go get it, but there were human ways of fixing this problem but mary went to her son and i wonder sometimes if we haven't gotten to the point in our lives sometimes in our faith where we only take the big ones to jesus in other words we think it's appropriate for us to to if we can handle it we can take care of it we'll keep it close to us we'll take we'll go 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 and when we finally reach that point where we know i can't fix this problem then i'll finally go to jesus and that verse i read at the beginning cast just the big anxieties on Jesus, right? Or does it say, cast all your anxieties? It says all of them. I always think sometimes we as, as adults could take a lesson from watching children pray. Because when kids pray, especially little kids pray, they pray for everything, don't they? 
I mean, they got a boo-boo, their dolls got, you know, their hair fell out or got cut off. Or, I mean, they pray for everything, even the problems. That, as parents, we know, I could fix that, no problem. But they pray for it because they see God as, that's I'm supposed to go to him with my problems. And for too many of us, we lose that. We become more and more independent. We say, you know what, God, I'll call on you when, it, when the big things come, but I'll take care of my life every other place. And just like a father with a child, I think he's saying, Cast, come to me. Come to me. And so as you think of some of those problems that I talked about there at the very beginning as you kind of rack in your brain, we go to some of the big ones, but think of some of just the, the everyday things that you're struggling with. Do you go to your heavenly father with them? Then we see the, the divine response. We see Jesus' response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now there were a few, when I, I talked about this, there, there were some, some moms that weren't too keen on the woman part of the response to mom there woman they're kind of like you know my son even if he was 30 if he responded to me asking him a question with woman that might not go over so well but this is where understanding the culture a little bit helps there's only one other time mary is mentioned in in john and it's when jesus is dying on the cross and when he's dying on the cross he looks down and he looks at his mom and john the the disciple the guy who wrote this book is there and he says woman your son and what he's saying there in his, his dying moments, he's looking at his earthly mom saying, he's going to take care of you now. And he uses the same phrase. It's not, there's not really an English word that translates this one very well. And he's not being mean. Jesus isn't mean. So don't focus too much on the woman part. But what does he say next? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That what does this have to do with me is a phrase that we see several times throughout the Bible to kind of give the, the speaking of listen in Jesus' case Saying to Mary, okay, what does this have to do with me? My mission is now different. I now have disciples. I have the Holy Spirit has descended upon me. I am now about my father's will and business. He always has been, but it's, it's uniquely changing here. He is now going to go off. He's going to speak. People are going to come. He's going to raise the ire of the Pharisees. He's talking about his gospel. This is why he came. That's why he says, my hour has not yet come. That phrase, my hour, or this hour, or the hour of Jesus is repeated in chapter 7, verse 30, chapter 8, verse 20, 12, 23, 27, 13, 17. It is the emphasis of this book that everything is moving towards a particular point, a climax with Jesus' death on the cross. That's why he's here. And here, this, this idea of the, the wine thing, he's like, that, that, what does this have to do with me? This isn't my main mission. Reminds me of when you're in the car with your kids and you're going somewhere, you're driving along and the inevitable question, are we there yet? Over and over, are we there yet? Are we there yet? It, we're, we have a place, a destination where we're going. That's, that's where we're headed. That's what's the focus. And the hour that Jesus is talking about, that's what his focus, his position is on. And what is the emphasis here is that God's work is paramount. Jeff came up here this morning and was talking. And by the way, we didn't like work this out beforehand, but he was talking about going through life and sometimes God's plans different than our plans. And that's part of going to him with our issues and our problems is recognizing God's par- his plan, his ways are paramount. That's what's important. And his ways, we have to learn to adapt to them. He doesn't adapt to us. This year, maybe next year, I'm not sure when it is, Disney is remaking the movie Aladdin, a live-action Aladdin, and there's lots of 
probably women. There's some guys my age. They're just excited. They loved it when it was a cartoon. You remember Aladdin? You rub the, the bottle and what comes out? The genie. What does the genie do? Grants you three wishes, and you can't wish for more wishes. Grants you three wishes, and unfortunately, sometimes we see Jesus that way. We come to him with our problems, and we have a very specific way we think it should be handled and taken care of, and he should do it. We never would admit that or say that, but it just if we're not careful, we can live our lives that way. Instead of adapting and adjusting to saying, as Jesus says here, listen, this, my, my, my role here is my hour. It's, it's the gospel. This is the, the point. And some of the things we go through, some of the issues that we face, some of the problems that we have are, are God's way of promoting his gospel, promoting his work through us. And our job is to, as we'll see in a minute, be obedient and pray and, and be close to God's study and meditate to figure out what God is teaching us and showing us in his response. So we see the human problem. The wine was running out. The divine response, God's work is paramount. And then we get to the human response. We need to obey. All right, in verse 5, Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So they do. This is, this is what happens. There's six big stones. There's these big, like, you know, they hold a hundred or 20 or 30 gallons. So obviously they're not, you don't carry them around with you very much. They're there, and he says, go fill them up to get 120 to 180 gallons of water. And remember what's running out. Water is not running out. Wine is running out. But he says, go fill them up and fill them all the way to the top. Fill them so they kind of overflow the sides to make sure there's nothing, there's nothing contaminating them. Fill them up. These were used by the Jews for purification because in the Old Testament, these couldn't become unclean like certain other vessels. So that's what they were used for. And what's interesting is the servants do this. You can imagine it's a little strange. They're not slaves. These are servants. They're just helping out. Mary comes to them and says, hey, guys, whatever my son tells you to do, that's what you need to go do. Okay. Now, I'm sure the servants probably look and say, Jesus, he's there with five other guys. Between those six people and us, we could probably go find some wine and take care of this. But what does Jesus say? He looks over at these big jugs and says, fill them full of water. Now, to get 120 to 180 gallons of water would take a while. You had to go to the well. You can just turn the faucet on. You had to go to the well, draw the water out, come back, dump the water in. I'm sure they're sitting there watching the wine get lower and lower going, why are we wasting our time filling these up with water? But they do it. They don't. There's, as far as we see, there's not any questions or anything. They just do it. Then after they're completely full... Jesus says, all right, get a, a, a scooper out and get some, some out. And I'm like, did it look like water still? Like, when did it change? That's, that's the, doesn't tell us. There's things I always wish it told us, but it doesn't. So they scoop it in. If it's still water, they're probably going, okay, okay why, why am I giving this to the head waiter? We're going to look really stupid, but okay. So they go and they give it to him. They do what Jesus tells them to do and he takes a sip and they see at that point it's exactly what what they need it's it's wine not only is it wine as this tells us it's the best it's the the the, the good wine the wine that's normally given at the beginning but now here it's at the end i'm sure the bridegroom's like huh because he didn't really plan to do this and as we learn from this little encounter here when we have problems and we go to Jesus and he responds and we recognize God's work is paramount, we also recognize that for a lot of our problems, 
God has already told us how to, or at least given us some instructions and commands of what to do. And sometimes they don't necessarily seem to make practical sense. They don't fit the way of the world. Sometimes it's like this. You're expecting him to say, go find the wine. Let's all work together. Instead, he says, this doesn't make any sense. Just go fill these up with water. Even though we're running out of wine, take 20, 30 minutes, however long it's going to take to fill this up with water. And sometimes in our lives, we look and say, this isn't the, 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 this doesn't make sense, Jesus. I'll have a husband or a wife, or a wife, let's just say that a married couple comes saying they're struggling in their marriage. And you would ask the wife, she says, you know, my, my husband, we have problems. So you ask this question, were you following the commands Jesus has already given you in your marriage? They may say, what do you mean? Well, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24 says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, let me ask you, does that make practical sense in 2019? Does the world say, yep, that's that's the best way to, to deal with marital problems? No. Unless you're living under a rock, you would realize that's pretty much the exact opposite of any advice you would get from anywhere. But that's what Jesus says through his word. I'm sure just as the servants are filling these things up with water, there are women that might go through, but this, this doesn't seem to make sense, but hey, there it is. Or you may, have, you may go to school, or you may go to work, or you may go somewhere where you, you have somebody that just is, is kind of a bully, a jerk. It's making your life difficult or terrible or awful, and you just can't stand them, and you, you want God to do something. And then you read Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 44, where Jesus said this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here's the question. When you go to Jesus with your problem, here's this issue. Are you loving your enemy? That doesn't make a lot of practical sense, does it? It's not much different than pouring a bunch of water into a big jug when you're running out of wine. Shouldn't I attack my enemy? Shouldn't I be defending my... Shouldn't I do all of these things that the world tells me to do? Or do I do what Jesus has already commanded? It's like when the Bible says, you know, raise your children in the fear and the discipline of the Lord. People come and they talk about issues with their kids or whatever. Are you, as a, as a parent, taking over the spiritual direction of your children? Are you taking time in the way you structure your home and how you live to raise your children in the fear and the discipline of the Lord? I mean, that's why we have the Home Point Center. It's a way to help you do that. But it doesn't do any good if you don't use it. The problem for many of us, myself included, is I go to God with my problems and I stop there and I forget, oh, his word has already told me some of the things I need to do. And they don't always make sense. They're not always easy. Sometimes they may cause me to look, get embarrassed in front of people. So when you think of some of the the problems that have gone in, in your brain right now, you've thought of them some of the issues, and you've prayed about them. Let me ask you this. Have you studied the Word of God to see, has He already given you some commands on how to handle them? If you haven't even bothered to look, would you take it upon yourself today or tomorrow to look to see if He's already said some things about it? And then the big question is, will you obey? 
Will you actually do what the Word of God tells you when it comes to that? Will you fill the jugs up with water? Will you take the cup to the headmaster? No matter how embarrassed you look, when he sips it and you think he's going to just taste water. The human response, obey. The last, the, the, the final part, we see the divine dimension then, the glory of God. Why all of this happens? Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Here's an interesting sentence. And his disciples believed in him. It's a sign. John is the book of signs. Some people say the first 10 chapters, that's what you could call this book. John punctuates certain events and and, and the ministry of Jesus as it grows by signs. And he uses that phrase at the very end of the book. He says there are many other signs he could have written about, but he didn't include all of them. And here's the first one. And a sign is, is, tells you something, right? I and mean, when you're driving down the interstate and you see a barn, you don't think much. But if you see a green sign with words on it, you pay attention because it's a sign. It points to something. It indicates something. And John tells us exactly what this sign indicates. The first of his signs he did at Galilee to do what? Manifest his glory. Display his glory. Display. Now, when we think of glory, sometimes we think just big bright lights and a halo and just move. That kind of imagery. But glory is really power. I mean, Jesus is, is separating himself from, from everything else that they've, they've seen John the Baptist, who has baptized people and he has drawn large crowds. But now Jesus has done something unique. He's made water into wine. That's just not normal. He's displaying to them that he is something wholly different than anything they've come across before. And then it says, and his disciples believed in him. Why I say that phrase is unique is, didn't they already believe in him? You go back to the end of chapter 1 and verse 41, Andrew finds Simon Peter and he says, we have found the Messiah. I mean, he believed he was the Messiah before this event. If you remember in verse 49, Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. They had belief. But here at the end of this miracle, this sign that we see, it says, and then they believed in him. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking faith is this static thing, that you you hear the gospel presented, you hear that God is supreme, he's the judge. We as humans are sinful and have fallen short. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And if we believe in him, we have salvation, we have eternal life, which is true. That's Believing in that is justification. And for a lot of us, unfortunately, we just kind of go, okay, good, I have faith. And you have faith there of justification. But faith, as we live our lives, as we go through the sanctification process, it kind of fluctuates. Do you remember Peter when he was in the boat and Jesus walked on water? What did Peter want to do? Walk on water. I would too. That would be kind of cool. And he steps out of the boat. And what happened? Not immediately. It it worked, right? Then what did he do? He looked away. Yeah, he looked away. And then what happened? Down he went. Why? It's faith. And I don't have to tell you, you understand this. There are days when your faith is strong, isn't it? There are days where things are going, certain things in your life, and and just the way God is working in your lives, it's just, I, I have, I'm on fire. I can go share the gospel at, you know, the atheist convention down the street. It doesn't matter. I'm ready to go. And there are other days where we struggle. There are things that come into our lives. 
and it's difficult. We even talk about John the Baptist. There comes a point where he's in prison and he's just struggling. And it's, you know, it's like when you're driving your car, your, your, your gas tank, it can get empty. You need to, it needs to get filled up. And here, as they have this relationship with Christ, as these disciples spend more and more time with him, they believe in him, but there are moments where that belief, it comes in, in, in the way Jesus works in their lives, he strengthens it, he builds it up. And what happens in this? They see a problem taken to Jesus. They see Jesus saying, listen, God's way is paramount. He still fixes the problem because of the, the obedience that's there. And their faith is strengthened. Sometimes in our lives, our faith is strengthened the most when we're simply obedient. We do what the word of God tells us to do, despite whether or not it makes sense, whether the world mocks us or makes fun of us. We sit there and say, you know what? God's word has told me to do this. I do it. And he works. I always wonder if there would have been wine at this wedding had the servants not filled up the jugs. Would Jesus have done it a different way or was that? Doesn't tell us. But it's about obedience. And so we respond in faith to the commands of Jesus. We see him work in our problems. We see him do things and strengthen and build us up. And so my appeal to you here before I wrap this up and, and, and pray, we're going to sing a final song this morning, is, is to ask you, are you obeying? Are you seeing your faith strengthened? Or is your faith weak? Is your faith a struggle right now? What I would call you to do is pray, reach out to God, look in his word, respond the way he has told you to the problems that you have. And I can't tell you what he's going to do. I can't tell you exactly how he's going to either strengthen you or, or show you something. or just, I don't know. That's the beauty of it. It's his way. And you'll see him work. Would you bow your heads this morning before I pray and the musicians come up and we sing. <laughs>